0: Good morning, everyone. Good morning. morning. Uh, my name's Matt. If you are new here, welcome. Along with Tim, I want to welcome you. Um, as Tim mentioned, we are going to be in the book of 2 Timothy. This is our uh, first day in 2 Timothy for our fall sort of preaching series. Uh, if you have a Bible, you can turn there. It's right after 1 Timothy. Uh, but also, we'll put the, uh, the verses up on the screen. Uh, so let me pray for us as we uh, are about to get into God's word. Uh, Lord, thank you for an opportunity to gather once again, uh, to come together in worship, to come together uh, with uh, hopefully an expectation, Lord, that we will hear from you, that we will grow closer to you as we devote ourselves both to worship and to the word. Uh, Holy Spirit, I pray that you would uh, use this time for good purposes. Uh, I pray that you would use me in spite of my own sin, in spite of my own failings, Lord, that you would lead us closer to yourself. And God, that each one here, whether this may be the first Sunday in church or whether they've been here many, many times before, I pray this would be a day uh, where we know you more and where our hearts are, are uh, opened up uh, to what you have to say. So please, uh, would, you, would you bless us? Would you speak to us? And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Uh, so Second Timothy... Uh, in case you aren't aware, uh, is a letter uh, from a man named Paul, the Apostle Paul, to uh, another man named Timothy. Uh, there, there is a First Timothy. Uh, we preached through that a few years ago. Uh, First Timothy was very much uh, a letter about what a healthy church looks like. Uh, it, it's a letter that's kind of like a church manual, and at the time, actually, we were leading up to us installing elders for the first time, and so that's kind of why, part of the reason we preached through it. A lot of instruction, a lot of uh, kind of a Paul saying to Timothy, uh, he was his protege, Lick Timothy, uh, I'm putting you in charge of this church in Ephesus, and here is how you should run it. Here's what you should do. Here's how you should organize things. Uh, So a lot of practical, very important instructions, and also important for us today. So it's it's a book, 1 Timothy, that you read to kind of understand how the church should function. Uh, 2 Timothy is similar to that, but as we're going to see, in this case, Paul is is writing with a little bit more personal urgency to Timothy. And that's for a couple of reasons. Uh, In the years since 1 Timothy, things have not necessarily gotten way better at the church in Ephesus. Uh, There's still a lot of struggles. Paul initially wrote to Timothy about the need to preach the right doctrine, to kind of challenge the false teachers in the church, and he has probably been doing that, but there's still some of those challenges. Uh, They've remained, and so Paul's going to write again about, kind of encourage him and lead him in the right direction. Uh, The other thing that's changed, though, is that Paul uh, finds himself in prison. Yet again, if you know Paul, he's often in prison, uh, but this time things seem f- uh, seem far more serious. Uh, Paul is in prison in Rome. He's he's been in prison before in Rome, but the first time he was under house arrest. It wasn't it wasn't it was like minimum security prison, right? You can watch TV, you can you can talk to your friends, you can have visitors. It's, it's not uh, as bad. But this would be like maximum security prison. He is in uh, probably scholars think the Mamertine prison in Rome. Uh, which actually, even though we have a cool graphic uh, with a, looking like that, actually this was like a pit in the ground. And the only daylight would be a hole uh, up above with kind of bars on it. And it was uh, near the Roman sewage system. So sewage would seep into this hole. It was deep. It was dark. Uh, and Paul had the sense that this time he was not getting out. Uh, as we read through, we're going to see that he, he believes he's very near the end of his life. And in fact, historically, that, that is true. So uh, this book is sometimes called Paul's Last Will and Testament. It's his last uh, recorded words that we have. Um, And so that's why we've called it uh, Final Words from Paul. And while this is a very personal letter, uh, we should be clear that it's not a private letter. As we read the first bit, we're going to see Paul intended that this would be uh, read within the church and throughout history. uh, And that's, that's what's happened. So the lessons that we see here, Paul to Timothy, are also ones for us. And so I'm going to begin. We're just doing the first seven verses uh, this morning. And uh, so here is uh, the word of God. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, according to the promise of the life that is in Christ Jesus, to Timothy, my beloved child, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. I thank God whom I serve, as did my ancestors, with a clear conscience, as I remember you constantly in my prayers night and day. Uh, I'm going to suggest to you, not just suggest, I'm going to tell you, here's what I think we're getting uh, in this whole book, but especially here in these first seven verses. I think we are getting a picture of effective discipleship. Of effective discipleship. So, just in case uh, you're not clear, God's master plan for humanity is that every human being would be evangelized and then would be discipled. Uh, God gets people's attentions in lots of uh, grand Supernatural ways, there are signs and wonders. We see that in the ministry of Jesus, of course, we see that in the early church, where there will be prophetic words, there will be healings, there'll be all sorts of things, visions and dreams. Those things happen to this day. But the goal of that is that the, the person would come to ask the question: who is this, who is this God who has done this? Well, what, what is it going on here? Who is the origin of this sign or this wonder? And they might come to know Christ. And the the business of the church, as it were, the mission of the church, is is the discipleship of those people. It's that for those that are wanting to know Christ or might be introduced to Jesus, that then we would help them to grow in faith. That's what discipleship is. That someone who's more mature in faith would help someone who's new to the faith or younger in faith to grow as a disciple. Uh, This is what we saw Jesus do, right? He came. What did he do? He Chose disciples, right? Disciple means follower of. Come, be my follower. They followed Jesus. They grew in their own faith. And then what did he do uh, before he left and went back up to heaven? He said, now I want you to go and I want you to make other disciples. Matthew 28, 19 and 20. His famous words, go therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And behold." I, will, uh, I am with you always to the end of the age. So this is ex- expressly stated by Jesus. Here, here, church, this is what you should do. You should disciple people. You should help them to grow. And this is what we see uh, Paul doing in his missionary journeys. He's, he's speaking the gospel, and then he's helping people to grow. And if we look back at the first two verses, his introduction, He says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, he's he's making clear his authority. That's part of how we know he thought other people would read this. He probably wouldn't have written this. It was just a personal letter to Timothy. Timothy knows he's an apostle, okay? But in case you're clear, he has authority in the church by the will of God. That's how he was appointed according to the promise of the life that is in Christ Jesus. That's the gospel. He's acknowledging the spiritual life he has that everyone has is from Jesus. To Timothy, my beloved child. There you see the, the discipleship relationship. That there's this kind of father-son relationship, close relationship, where Paul has been imparting to Timothy all of these things along the way, and then grace and mercy and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. We, We can tell already that there is a, they're not just acquaintances, they weren't just friends from, you know, the synagogue back in the day. This was a close relationship, one where Paul has been speaking into Timothy's life. That is discipleship. If you are a Christian, you are a disciple. And you are a disciple who is meant in good time to disciple others. Not, not 25 years later when you've got it all figured out, but actually now. There's always someone around us that we can help to grow. And many times it's a mutual growth where we're kind of speaking to each other's lives and helping each other to grow. And our goal should be that, that these discipleship relationships are effective. And so that's the question I want to answer this morning. We, we're going to see it here over and over again. That, that Timothy is a disciple of Paul and Paul wants him to make more disciples. But the question, the real question is, what, how does that go well? Uh, because uh, it's possible to be in a relationship with someone and not have them actually grow in Christ. Or it's possible to be in a church and not actually get into a discipleship. How, do, how does this happen so that it's actually effective? So that people are growing in their faith. I see three things in this text that I think are helpful. Uh, Three needed things. So that's the question. What is necessary for effective discipleship? Uh, The first thing we see is that we need personal integrity. One of the biggest reasons that discipleship fails is that the person doing the discipling fails in some way. Uh, We need personal integrity. Probably even if this is your first time in church, you know that there have been ministry leaders, probably famous ones if you've heard of them, who've been leading big ministries, had incredible influence, seemed to be very effective for Christ, and yet there's a scandal that comes out, and all of a sudden, all of that influence is just, it, it all falls apart. And people are hurt. Ministries that seem to you know, be vibrant and strong are, are shown to have no foundation. I mean, the foundation of Christ should be there, but the one leading it, it, it makes it very hard. For those people who have been a disciple of that person, who's saying, go this way, follow me, I know where I'm going, and then you realize they're cheating on their wife, they're stealing money, they're they're yelling at their staff all the time, and and it creates doubt. It creates a lot of conflict and, and question and hurt for the people who've been led by that person. It happens on a small scale too. Sadly, I've heard many stories of people who said I was part of a great church. It was, it was growing, it was vibrant. People were, you know, coming to Christ and growing in their faith. And then we found out the pastor was sleeping with another person on staff and everything stopped. I usually ask follow-up questions. What happened for those in ministry? I mean, not that everyone abandoned their faith, but the ministry of the church ground to a halt. People were hurt. People began to question, especially those newer to the faith. What, what exactly am I in? Like, if I can't trust that person, then, then how, how can I trust what they're talking about? It's devastating. It can happen in just interpersonal relationships, too, where we're leading someone or someone's leading us, and then they disappoint us greatly, and it, it makes it harder for us to remain faithful ourselves. Personal integrity is, is key if we are to lead people Effectively. And what we see with Paul is that he was not that kind of a leader. That he says, look at verse three. He says, I thank God whom I serve as did my ancestors with a clear conscience as I remember you constantly in my prayers night and day. So picture Paul, he's in a pit, it's dark, it's deep, he's got a lot of time to reflect on his life and he's writing this letter, I'm sure how, right on a napkin or something and and what he's thinking of is he, he reflects, look at the kind of person he is. He's thanking God in this prison. He's, he's saying, I'm, I'm someone who serves. I have a desire still to serve and I have a clear conscience. So what does he mean by this? He does not mean that he's sinless. We know this because there's a lot of other letters where he speaks about his struggles, how he's frustrated at times, that he continues to sin even though he doesn't want to sin and he's wrestling with it. So it doesn't mean that he's perfect. What it means is that as he reflects on his life, in as much as he is able to see the depths of his own heart and the calling of God, he's saying, I have been faithful to what God has called me to do and wherever there is sin, I've confessed it. I've brought it to the cross. Paul is not someone who is sinless, but he is someone who is blameless because he's a Christian, because he knows and believes that Jesus has died for his sin. To have a clear conscience should be the goal of every Christian. Not only should it be our goal, it's our joy. It's our delight. And yet the challenge of conscience is something that we, we all struggle with. And I think, we, I think there's two uh, different ways that we can go with this. There are some of us uh, for whom that, that feeling of conscience, and you know, even if, even if you're not a Christian, you're new to the church, we all know that feeling of conscience where we're unsettled. Right? We're doing something we know we shouldn't do, and yet we're still doing it, and we, just, we don't feel quite right about it, but we have the, the power within us, in our sin, to take that feeling of conviction and just stuff it somewhere deep. Right? You know what this is like. Right? I know I shouldn't do it, but man, the, the benefits outweigh. We do this weird pro-con list, kind of twisted, and we think, I'm, just, I'm not going to be totally truthful in this instant, and we shove it down. Right? I'm, I'm gonna say this thing or do this thing that I know I probably shouldn't do as a Christian that doesn't quite match up with what God wants me to do and yet we're gonna do it and amazingly, we can keep doing it even though we f- don't feel great about it. And the other scary thing is that the more that we do that, the less we feel bad. The Bible says it's actually possible to, uh, to sear our conscience is the way it's used. This is uh, in uh, 1 Timothy 4. So, the first letter, Paul says this to Timothy. Now, the Spirit expressly says that in later times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared. You get this image, you know, like you sear meat, it's got this hard uh, outer covering to it. And that's, that's what can happen to our conscience. Think of a callus. Right by this point, our children, uh, after a summer, running on bare feet, they, they can walk across broken glass, they don't feel anything because they have a callus on the bottom of their feet. The sensitivity is gone. That is what can happen to our consciences when we keep going against them. And Paul says it's a very scary thing, a very dangerous thing. When he writes, they've departed from the faith, it doesn't actually mean that you can lose your salvation. What it means is that there are some people who, who on the outside seem to have faith. They're doing certain Christian things, but in time, what's revealed by their lack of morality is actually that they don't truly believe. And it's exposed because they're able to keep going against their conscience over and over and over again to the point that they're so far from the Lord that they realize and everyone realizes actually they never really... Love the Lord. And, and Paul's command to Timothy or his, his word is, look, we have to be careful about this. And Paul is saying, look, I have a clear conscience. What a joy it is to know that when I see sin in my life, I'm, I'm able to bring it to the cross. So we need to be careful on the one side that we're not constantly ignoring our conscience and get to the point where we think, you know what, actually, it's great. I don't feel so bad anymore. I must be winning in some way. That's, that's the scariest place to be. On the other side, though, uh, there are some of us who have um, a soft conscience, meaning we feel the weight of our of our wrong choices, but but then we just sit with them. We have a heavy conscience, you might say. We feel regret over things done in the past. We feel maybe a conviction about the pattern of sin in our lives right now, and yet we we don't actually ever move past it. We just kind of sit in it, and the weight of it just crushes us and brings us to the point of despair. The This this feeling like we can't do anything good in our lives, and it's very different from the seared conscience person. But in both cases, we actually are in sin. We are allowing the sin in our lives to define us. Paul isn't like that. He has a clear conscience. How? Because he knows what Christ has done for him, he knows what Jesus has accomplished on the cross, he knows he's a sinner. He knows apart from the grace of God, he will be condemned in sin. But he knows that Jesus took all the condemnation upon himself. And so now he can be blameless. He can be free. Look at how he writes it in 2 Corinthians 7.10. Uh, he says, for godly grief, there's the, the conscience, right? For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. Whereas worldly grief produces death. He's saying, look, every human being... Whether you're a Christian or not, we have a conscience. It's, it's a part of the way that God made us. So there are lots of people out there in the world that are, you know, they're navigating by their conscience, what feels right or good. And there's sometimes we feel this sense of, of worldly grief, you've done the wrong thing, that, but that's not the same thing as knowing you are a sinner before the Lord. That, that is a godly grief. That's a conviction that comes from the spirit of God. And, and when we bring that feeling, that sin to the cross, then we know that it's, done away with for good. Jesus has taken all the condemnation apart himself so then we can move forward without regret. That's the key, is that we see our sin, we repent fully, we turn and go in the other direction, but we actually go somewhere. For those who have a seared conscience, they they never see it for what it is. And they're walking in the wrong direction, think everything's great. For others with a heavy conscience, they know that they've sinned, but they just never move on. Both don't understand the gospel fully. Jesus has come that we might be f- set free from our sin and that we might be able to walk forward with a clear conscience. That's Paul. Paul saying, for all the stuff in my life, you know who I am, Timothy. You know that, I, that I'm thankful to God genuinely now, that I'm seeking to serve the Lord and that my conscience is clear. So how do we get there? Well, we need to invite further examination into our lives which is something that frankly we don't love usually, right? Even this right now, we're like, this is great, but is there other stuff that we're gonna talk about? Because it feels kind of weighty, right? It feels like, I get what you're saying, Matt. You're saying that God wants to know every part of me and that really feels uncomfortable, but that that should be our desire and we can invite that sort of examination through prayer. In fact, we see a good example of it from David who is no uh, stranger to conviction. Here's what he wrote in Psalm 139. Search me, O God, know my heart try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way of everlasting. It's a powerful thing to spend some time in prayer and actually with a a genuine heart, pray through Psalm 139. This is the last part of it and say, God, I really do want you to see is there any grievous way in me? Because it's very easy for us to, to stuff things in places in our hearts and minds that are dark and we forget about them, we don't wanna remember about them or blind spots we don't even see. And so we invite the spirit of God and when we feel the conviction. We don't stop there. We bring it to the cross. It's an opportunity to remember, man, I'm, I'm free in Christ. Praise God. When we're at that place, then we can start to lead people. If we don't have this kind of personal integrity, anyone that we're leading, we're just, we're sabotaging the thing that we're trying to build in them because eventually that sin's gonna come out that we haven't talked about, that the duplicity of our lives will reveal itself and then we're gonna end up hurting them, hurting their faith. But when we do the work personally first to come to the point of a, not a perfection, but a a clear and genuine conscience, then then we can lead others in the same way because that's really what discipleship is about. We all have sin, but there's a savior. So that's the first thing, personal integrity. Second thing we see here, is that for there to be effective discipleship, there needs to be genuine relationships. Uh, Look at verses four and five. Paul writes, As I remember your tears, I long to see you, that I may be filled with joy. I'm reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois, in your mother Eunice, and now I am sure dwells in you as well. There's a lot of emotion there, right? Paul's got, he's got tears in his eyes. He's longing to see Timothy later on. We're gonna say, please come, Timothy, please come visit me. He wants the joy of seeing him. Interesting about Paul, he was a hard-headed man. Like if you read through, he, I mean, he had a laser focus on doctrine, on the truth. He wanted to make sure people believed the right thing, but also he, he really loved people. There's a great scene when he's leaving the church in Ephesus, which he, which he was, you know, leaving Timothy in charge of. He goes to kind of visit and uh, he's on the shore. Uh, he's about to get on a boat, right? It's, and, and look at what it says. This is Acts 20. Uh, 36. And when he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all. And there was much weeping on the part of all. They embraced Paul and kissed him, being sorrowful most of all because of the word he had spoken, that they would not see his face again. And they accompanied him to the ship. Man, there's clear emotion there. These are people that he has taught, that he's discipled, and they have an emotional bond. This needs to be part of our relationships if we're going to disciple people. It, it can't just be superficial. It's, it's, it can't just be like a, you know, like a mentor relationship at work where you're talking about certain, th- you know, things, skills that you need to build. Like, that's good and fine, but that's not the same as true Christian discipleship. It, it needs to be in a place where we're open and vulnerable. And the other thing I see here, which is interesting, is that uh, we need to see that the re- it's not usually just one relationship where discipleship happens. Uh, Discipleship is not a one-person job because what we see Paul talking about in Timothy's life is that there were multiple uh, relationships of discipleship starting in his home. Uh, There's a little window, right, into how Timothy came to faith and grew in faith. And we know a little bit about Timothy. Uh, He grew up in a town called Lystra. And probably what happened is that on Paul's first missionary journey, he went through Lystra and he preached the gospel, and probably Timothy's mom and his grandma came to faith. They were Jews. That's what Paul was evangelizing. And probably they then went home and started to evangelize, tell Timothy, I don't know how old he was at the time, about Jesus. They said, we found the Messiah. Here here he is. The interesting thing, though, is that Timothy's dad was not a Jew or a believer. Uh, he He was a Greek. And uh, we know this because when Paul comes back, right, first missionary journey comes back, second time around, uh, we get a little uh, direct sort of window into Timothy. So here's Acts 16, and um, this is what is said. Paul came also to Derbe and to Lystra, so we came back, a disciple there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. He was well spoken of by the brothers at Lystra and Iconium. Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him and he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places for they all knew that his father was a Greek. So this gives us kind of a picture of, of Timothy. How, how did his faith begin? It began at home with his mom, with his grandma. His dad probably had, didn't have anything to say spiritually speaking, at least in terms of the Christian faith but he was discipled by his, by his mom and his grandma. And then Paul came along and I, they identified the church said, hey, you know what? This is a really strong young man, really believer, like genuine. And Paul said, okay, I'm gonna take him under my wing. And that's when the next relationship of discipleship began. And so I think we should uh, take some points of application for us as a church. Firstly, uh, as I said, we, we should be looking for these kinds of relationships around us, which is hard. Deep, deep relationship is tough to do. Uh, it's tough for lots of reasons. Logistically, it's difficult, just in our lives, to find time to actually meet with other people. Uh, there's a guy that I meet with, and we have a kind of a, a deeper relationship, talk about our life and family. Uh, we met a few times at the beginning of the summer, play tennis and to connect, and then, and then nothing. Why? Because we both got busy. And he texted me, hey, you want to go for lunch? Great. No, not that, no, not that day. No, that doesn't, it's hard to actually just find a time on the calendar but here's the thing i was convicted about if i if i forg- it's e- it would be easy for me to forget about it it would be easy for me just to be like oh man let's maybe november i don't know when it was going to work we're all like that but if we see this as a priority meaning i i need to be in these kinds of relationships then we will Uh, calendar, right? What else do we do? Things that are important in our lives, we put them on a calendar. We open a Google thing and we put a thing in there. We have the special color for it, you know, or maybe discipleship color, whatever you want to do. And I'm just saying we have, if we think it's important, we see it's important, we have to make time for it logistically. But of course, the other challenge is that it's tough to be emotionally available, okay? If you're a Canadian, it means you are residual Brit, right? British is our heritage, which means that we have trouble showing emotion, okay? For us, right, I know if you're from another country, you come and our deep, heartfelt handshake doesn't do much for you, right? Because it's like, that seems really cold. But for us, we're like, wow, I shook their hand. I really feel emotionally drained today. I'm going to have to go home, right? And just try to spend some time alone, right? Because the stiff upper lip of the Britishness is still there, we have, to, we have to war against that. Now, it doesn't mean that we all have to hug each other fully, right? If, you, if that, you're down, that's great. But it means that we should be looking for actually deep connections, where we actually are emotionally involved, whatever that looks like in our cultural time. Because otherwise, we're just going to skim along the surface. And we're not going to have opportunity to actually connect with each other. The other challenge, of course, is that we have to risk some things. Right some of us this is a challenge because we've been we've been hurt by others in relationships and that's just the reality it's risky right connecting with people other sinful human beings it's always risky but the truth of the matter is that it is impossible to grow as a christian if you are alone it's it's not a solo activity I mean, there's lots of verses in the Bible about bearing each other's burdens so that, you know, where we're told you need to be in relationship, but just think about it. The, the greatest enemy we have is, is what? Our own sin? And what is probably the, the deepest sin that we have? Pride, right? That we think too much about ourselves. And what does pride do? It, it's very good at blinding us to our own failings, to our own struggles. We're never going to see certain things unless there's someone in our life who can ask us some questions, some uncomfortable questions. So we need to be looking for these relationships. It doesn't have to be everyone, right? You have to tell your story to everyone, but a few people at least. Another more specific application that I think we, we should, maybe a note of encouragement from this text, would be specifically to parents. Because if you look at what God did in Timothy's life, his mom and his grandma, they were influential. So it's very true, we see, we see it in Paul's life, that God can save someone that has no Christian background and bring them to vibrant faith. That was my story. But it's also true that God intends to use families to raise up the next generation of Christians and that we should be encouraged and maybe convicted as parents that what happened in Timothy's life, God wants to see happen in our family's life as well. So if you're here this morning and you're a parent and you're wondering, I wonder who it is that I could disciple. Let me tell you who. They're the ones that woke you up late last night and you were so frustrated by them and you just want someone to, just for them to grow and mature somehow. And yet the answer is that you're, you need to be part of that. And the more specific application I would say here is in particular for mums and single moms. Right, Timothy was in a family with his dad, seems to have had no spiritual influence, right? We don't know if he was antagonistic, he just, he wasn't not a believer. And yet what happened? Through his mom, through his grandma, Timothy grew in faith, came to strong, vibrant faith. That, that should be on our minds and hearts, ladies. As you're there with your kids and you wonder, what, what is all of this for? It's, it's for this, that there is eternal work being done in every home if we have a mind to see it. So be encouraged, be, be hopefully maybe convicted that there is good work that can and should happen. It happens all the time through moms, single moms. In my life, my neighbor, if you know my story, Nancy Jones, single mom, Raising her two boys, they were the family I went to church with for the first time. She didn't explicitly disciple me, but I was hugely influenced by her demonstration of faith. Let us not forget these kinds of relationships that God will use in the church. So, personal integrity, yes. Genuine relationships, we need them. Third thing, though, third thing, is that for there to be effective discipleship, there has to be a spiritual focus. So let's look at our last couple of verses. Uh, Verse six, for this reason, says Paul, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God gave us a spirit, not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. So here, Paul is kind of getting to the climax of this first little bit. He's saying, he's saying, look, what I want you to understand, uh, Timothy, is that you have a faith, a genuine, vibrant faith, which means you have been given the gift, firstly, of the Holy Spirit. And that that spirit, along with that, comes certain spiritual gifts. And that all of these things are to be used for the good of the church. What you have to understand about Timothy is that Timothy was very different from Paul. Paul seems, by all accounts, to be a fairly hard-headed, bold, right kind of brash guy, which is great. That hard head, just he smashed through all sorts of barriers and really did effective work for the ministry, which is great. But Timothy, he was, he was pretty shy, seems like. If you look at Paul's words, Timothy is always encouraging him. In in the first Timothy, right? Don't worry if you're younger. You're to lead in the church, right? Be strong, right? Speak boldly. If you picture Timothy, he was a a young man of genuine faith, but in his just personality, he was more timid, a little more insecure, probably weaker. And yet God had called him to this, this massive calling of leading the church where you need strength, you need certainty, you need boldness. And so there's this big gap that probably everyone could see. Paul could see it. It's a gap, frankly, that exists in all of our lives. right? All of us have certain areas of weakness. And yet God has called us to something. And there's usually a big big, big gap. And we're wondering, how, how can I possibly actually do that thing that God has called me to do? I don't, I don't feel like I have skills in that area. I don't feel like I'm strong in that area. And the answer is always the same, what Paul is talking about here. The, th- the thing, the person that bridges the gap is the Spirit of God. That as Christians, we have been given the gift of God himself to dwell within us, to make us new creations. And this Spirit, notice, notice the characteristics of the Spirit. Power, love, self-control. Paul is saying to Timothy, this is, this is who you have in you, God himself. And so yes, you, you may feel weak at times, you may feel unsure at times, but... But I'm exhorting you, I'm encouraging you, right, to continue on. Fan into flame the gift of God. It's a great image. Because we know what happens with a fire, right? When there are embers that are burning, if if you don't do anything, you know what's going to happen. The fire's going to go out. But if you fan it into flame, right, give some oxygen, give some fuel, it it will grow into a a roaring fire once again. And this is the thing that Paul keeps telling to Timothy. Uh, look, Look back again, 1 Timothy 4. Very similar sort of exhortation. He says, do not neglect the gift you have, which was given you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. Practice these things. Immerse yourself in them so that all may see your progress. He's saying you've been given some, the gift of the spirit, but also some specific gifts, probably of leadership and teaching. He's saying don't neglect them. Because what happens when you neglect your gifts is they, they, they grow unfamiliar, this happens a lot of times, right? In the church, there's maybe a glimmer of something that we saw God use us for something we did and yet life gets busy, we get distracted and man, we just don't think about it anymore. It, it, it shrinks, it gets hard and cold. And, and the downside of that is that, first of all, our own faith is hindered, but also that the church, if we're part of a church, God's given us gifts for the good of the church, and the people are not being benefited by the things that he's given us. So everyone's faith is hindered. Uh, Look at what it says here in 1 Corinthians 12. Now there are varieties of gifts, but the same spirit. And there are varieties of service, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all and everyone. To each is given the manifestation of the spirit for the common good. So we have kind of layers of application here. On the top layer, you might say, Paul is saying to Timothy, look, you have faith. You have a faith. Don't neglect your faith. You're a Christian. You're a leader in the church. Grow in that way. Don't forget who you are. You're a new creation. And for all of us, the application must be the same. That if we neglect the gift of faith that we have, it will grow cold. That it is possible for us to wake up one day and realize, man, I can't remember the last time I prayed. I don't know where my Bible is. I was at church a few weeks ago and we realized that this this Christian life that we're living is cold and hard. There's no vibrancy and we should be concerned at that point for our soul. And we're certainly of no help. We're not not gonna be effectively discipling anyone in that state. So first and foremost, you've been given the gift of faith. It's not because you're smart. It's not because you're fantastic. It's because God loves you. He loves us. So we are alive spiritually because of that. But then the, the second layer the more specific thing is that in that, there are gifts that you've been given. Spiritual gifts, right? Varieties of gifts, all different, different kinds. But all of them are there, why? For the common good. They've been given so that we might build each other up. So we might benefit each other. And Paul's reminding Timothy, look, there are some times we prayed over you, there's certain gifts you have, don't neglect those. Not just Duchess for your sake, but for the sake of the church that you're seeking to lead. And we need to hear that as well. Because I think there's many of us, I mean, for me, there's decades probably, maybe not decades, plural, but at least decade where I didn't really think of any spiritual gifts. I didn't even think that way. I was just going to church, you know, helping out here and there. I didn't really think, man, God has given me certain things that might be helpful, might be useful. But it's really clear all of us have that. And we shouldn't be afraid of it. Notice, Notice the language there. God gave us a spirit not of fear, we shouldn't be worried or anxious or fearful of stepping out in these ways. We should be eager to see God. What is it? What have you equipped me with? So I'll tell you a story just to kind of close off our time of what this could look like. Uh, this happened uh, here before I left for sabbatical. It's a Sunday morning. Uh, just finished preaching. We have prayer time, and a, a woman came up. She's part of the church, and she came up and she said, oh, "Matt, I look. I'm a little nervous. I'm a little scared to say this, but I feel like there's something that God." Has given me a a word for you, but I I don't know if I should say it. I'm nervous. And I was like, well, don't, don't be nervous. I mean, share it with me, we'll discern together if indeed it is from the Lord. Just just because people think they have something from God doesn't mean that it is, right? We're supposed to test that, so we'll do that. And as she shared this word, it was it was it cut to my heart. It was a genuine word of prophecy for the Lord for me that I needed to hear. And and paid out great spiritual dividends for for weeks and months to come. In fact, this woman, as she began to grow in this, this gift, we began to work with her. There were other words of prophecy. Other words that came from the Lord that were a great blessing. And I thought to myself, this I think is what Paul is talking about here. That there was a nervousness on her part. I'm not sure, is this actually from the Lord? That's, that's okay. It's good. If you think maybe you have a teaching gift. Right? You probably shouldn't just go and get a class together and start teaching. Right? You should probably come to the leadership of the church and say, I think, I think maybe I have giftings in this area. Great, let's discern that. We have actually a whole system to do that. That's a great thing. I think maybe I, I would be hospitable. I'd like, to, I'd like to do that. Where do you live? I don't actually have a home right now. Okay, well, maybe let's work on that first. And then, but you're, you're seeking to know what God has gifted you with. And then through the leadership of the church, you're growing in that. We should all be looking to do that. So that, why? So that we might be blessed. So that we might be helped. So that we would actually all grow in ways that God intends for us. We we do it together. So my hope for us as a church, this is a great time, beginning of kind of the ministry year, is that we would be eager to see discipleship happen. Right? Do we want that? Do we want we look, we could, there's hot dogs, we could just get hot dogs, we could just get cotton candy. I'd feel great, right? That was fun. Go back, we'll come back next Sunday. We could do that. You can do that for a bunch of years and not have any actually substance, anything happen. My question is, don't we want more than that? We do, right? We want to grow spiritually. And this this is what it takes. It begins with each of us, right? Lord, is there anything of conviction? Help me to see it. Help me to confess it, right? Do I actually know anyone? It's scary. I want to step out, get to know people. And Lord, what have you gifted me for? Right? How, how can I grow in that? How can I help others as I'm talking to them have a spiritual focus? Not just hear about their day, not just let them vent, that's great, but actually ask them, man. How, what about you and the Lord? Right? Are you, what's the Lord doing in your life so that the relationships are actually spiritually fruitful? That's my heart for us as a church. I think it's God's heart for us. We see it here in scripture. Let me close by praying that for us. Lord Jesus, I'm so thankful for, for Paul, so thankful for Timothy, man of faithfulness, so thankful for, for Timothy's mom and grandma who were, were faithful, probably in a difficult uh, family situation. Maybe Timothy's dad wasn't happy with the discipleship going on in the home and yet they persevered, Lord. And so I just, I pray that we would, uh, that we would see all of this and seek to apply the same lessons to, to walk in the same ways. I do pray in particular, Lord, for the women of our church, for those moms or maybe grandmas or single parents, Lord, whatever they might be, where it's a challenging family situation, where maybe there's one uh, a spouse that is not a believer and, and it's, there's tension there, God. I pray that there would be great encouragement, Lord, that we would see that even in these difficult kind of situations, as we seek to be faithful, you will bless our efforts. Lord, not that it's a guarantee, not that we can make someone a believer, but that we can be faithful, and we can trust that you will use our efforts for the good of others. And I pray that for us as a church, church-wide, Lord, that we would seek those same kinds of relationships. For those of us who are more mature in the faith, that we would, we would step into positions of leadership. We would heed the call. We'd allow ourselves to be assessed and discerned. And God, that then we would, we would be faithful for what you've called us to. I do pray, Lord, that the spiritual gifts you've given us, Lord, they would be used for incredible effectiveness, And Lord, that each one of us would have that mindset that you have given us something that we would benefit to others, some gift, some ability, and that it comes through the Spirit and is to be used by the Spirit. So help us, Lord. Help us to be a church where we actually grow together in Christ, where it's our joy, like Paul says, to to, to connect again and to know each other well and to see that growth. And so I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.